The AI Tipping Point podcast is brought to you by Worldwide Technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp, and produced by Government Executive Media Group Studio 2G. Cloud data and other tools have helped to set the stage for artificial intelligence, and with 5G, Edge, and other tech on the horizon, 2020 is set to be the biggest year yet for AI. In order to pave the way forward and fully embrace secure, revolutionary AI, government and IT leaders will need to lean on trusted partners and tools. Partners like Worldwide Technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp are here to help, offering guidance, support, and secure solutions for every part of your AI journey. Reach out today to learn more about how they can help simplify, accelerate, and protect your data pipeline for AI. Welcome to another episode of the AI Tipping Point, a podcast from Government Executive Media Group's Studio 2G in collaboration with NVIDIA, NetApp, and WWT that aims to answer the question, if 2019 was the tipping point for AI, then what's ahead? I'm your host, Constance Sayers, president of Government Executive Media Group. On today's episode, we're focusing in on the double-edged sword of data. There's no doubt that today data is a valuable resource. It fuels a new age of information and a suite of tools, including artificial intelligence and machine learning, which are sharpening decision-making for government leaders and automating monotonous tasks for workers. But data also comes with a dark side. Mountains of data need storage, sorting, and cleaning. Incomplete data can leave algorithms biased or unhelpful, and a new wave of data privacy laws bring with them questions and requirements about data use and anonymization. Here with me in the studio today to dig into both the power and problems of data is Greg Smithberger, Director of the Capabilities Directorate and Chief Information Officer for the National Security Agency, and Kirk Kern, Chief Technology Officer at NetApp. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Great. So today we're really looking at some of the fundamental building blocks of AI, and one of those is, is, is data. And so the podcast series is really aimed to investigate, especially the episode today, the idea that if 2019 was the tipping point for AI and IT modernization, what does that portend for 2020? So could you both talk to us about your experiences with AI and modernization through the last year? And maybe give us a, a look at what might be coming down the pipe for 2020. Uh, Greg, I'll start with you. Okay, so uh, the National Security Agency has really been, I would say, in a constant state of IT modernization for the last uh, 15 years. So we've been on a variety of different cloud journeys that I'm happy to talk about, both uh, first starting with uh, an internal cloud journey where we didn't have uh, any classified uh, commercial cloud offerings to leverage. So we built our own in-house uh, equivalents to those, you know, large scale enterprise utility compute and some very large scale mission systems. And I'm sure we'll get into uh, that we, uh, as we go deeper into the conversation, but the, but we re collectively refer to that set of mission capabilities as the IC Gov Cloud. It's a very large scale, high performance data uh, fusion, data discovery, uh, automation environment to really help us to cope with uh, uh, synthesizing intelligence insights uh, from mountains of data of various types. So we'll get into that. Uh, and um, the last uh, year, uh, has really been about completing the journey away from our legacy environments to being all in, in this uh, integrated uh, mission environment, sort of a, a data lake, a very large scale data lake, data ocean, a variety of different types of data. 
And then also we've been experimenting with leveraging uh, commercial cloud capabilities to complement what we've built in-house. Um, starting with uh, certainly the classified uh, uh, commercial cloud offerings from Amazon to the intelligence community, the C2S contract. We've been experimenting with leveraging that to complement what we do ourselves. Uh, and NSA's environment has been made available to the intelligence community as a shared asset. So everyone can take advantage of uh, the automation, the big data processing environments to fuse sources from across the community and to really do things at, at speed and scale that uh, the community couldn't do before. And I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that. Uh, so many aspects of that. And in terms of 2020, uh, the big move that we're making right now is in our hybrid uh, compute initiative, uh, HCI, that John Sherman, the ICCIO, talked about at uh, an event last week. Uh, and that's really about a different sort of partnership between NSA and industry for the foundational hardware that underpins the IC GovCloud. So uh, there are lots of things going on here. And uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning are key parts of this uh, environment uh, that we use in a variety of different ways. I'm sure we'll get into that as well. Yeah. So many, many different dimensions to this. Sounds exciting. And Kirk, what are you seeing? Well, I'd like to pull back and maybe take a broader look at things. Um, at least the initial statement around AI reached its tipping point and more broadly across the federal government. Um, I, I don't think we've reached a tipping point in implementation. Where we're at today, I think, is that the federal government recognizes the value in AI technologies and starting to make those exploratory investments into AI and applied uses for it. Um, if we pull back even further, our chief strategy officer published his 2020 IT predictions. And at the top of his list was the global rollout of 5G, making AI-driven IoT a reality. And you know, that's a lot to incorporate in a single statement. But what it really means is that we're going to see this uh, rise of edge or fog computing. And that, that's really being driven by the need to handle all the big data sensors that are out there. It's going to require AI processing at the edge in order to knock down some of that information before it hits the cloud or an enterprise data center. And so fundamentally, we see these technologies that will reduce the tidal wave of data, you know, egressing in the data centers. And to the, what it means to the government is that they'll have access to newer technologies that are coming out on the, in the commercial market space that really directly align with their mission, right? So folks like NASA, NOAA, DOD, and even IC mission space have workloads that are very similar to this emerging IoT space. And we think it's gonna be a very exciting time to take advantage of those technologies. Well, we were both talking earlier uh, we, everyone was uh, kind of indicating that natural language processing was certainly something that NetApp had previously called out as a near-term, you know, AI application for government use. So, um, is that definitely something that's on the horizon? And you know, what can agencies do to make that a reality? I think both of you have experience with that, and we'll talk about that first. Okay. Um, yeah. So I had discussed that earlier, and I think that's an ex excellent example of using AI for augmentation. Um, 911 call centers, DHS call centers are staffed based on projected call load derived from historical information. And in the case of a large scale unforeseen event, what typically happens is it's impractical to scale the human resources rapidly so that you know, they can answer all the calls that are coming into these call centers. And I think that's an excellent use case where NLP can be used to you know, respond to the surge in call volume, incoming messages or texts. And the NLP service can you know, record name, number, location, situation, and then route it to the appropriate dispatch queues. Clearly, over time, the service can be used as a first call response, but fundamentally, I still think, at least for 911, we're going to have a human in the loop for the foreseeable future. Now, we're also looking at native language 
uh, NLP. And that's where, you know, they, you know, there's a translation service that helps bridge the language barriers of callers to the operators in real time. And so we see that as a good augmentation of a capability for 911 operators. And then looking further into the future, I've seen that there are some smart city programs that are out there that are using video and analytics to detect and process events and then dispatch fire and police to the events. And an interesting uh, sort of a convergence there is where you start to use the event correlation with the live case information and it becomes an attractive AI project as well. Yeah. Amber, what do you see? So uh, NSA has been working on uh, natural language processing again for over a decade. Uh, and uh, the problem we have is that we have large volumes of data in every language, every dialect you can imagine. And uh, it, the challenge is that we can't scale to work uh, the problem set with human linguists alone, we need the machines to assist them. So uh, our research directorate has been doing cutting edge uh, things in, uh, in making foreign languages, uh, a wide range of foreign languages, as easy for our linguists and analysts to work with as English text. Uh, so there is a, a speech to text trend, uh, dimension to this. There's an automated translation aspect to this. And it's really an interaction between our human linguists who are constantly refining the translations and the machines, learning from the humans, the humans being accelerated by the machines. And it's really helped us to be far more effective and efficient. And again, those capabilities are sort of baked into that shared mission environment, that IC GovCloud environment that I've uh, talked about. And uh, we're constantly learning from industry. We're looking at everything that they're doing open source, but we're also doing our own unique research. So we have this really kind of interesting hybrid environment that we developed. Yeah, yeah. can I ask a question? Sure. What do you see in terms of the relationship of use of open source software for that, that MOP versus something that you develop in-house? Uh, is it like 50-50? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, it is a hybrid between the two because we're constantly looking at everything that's available in the open source world. Uh, NSA actually pushes uh, things out into the open source community also uh, that are less sensitive and uh, some basic technologies like this we do push out. Uh, other things are classified and we keep in-house. So I would say um, there are, I would say probably more than 50% of that is in the open source world, uh, but there are some unique components to it. But really what makes uh, NSA unique is uh, the large number of, and variety of language models that we have as we've worked a very diverse set of languages uh, and a, a wide number of dialects that typically aren't being worked by industry. Uh, they're sort of working more, tend to work more mainstream languages. Yeah. And, and do you find yourself contributing a lot of that that, um, that IP back into the open source community or do you keep that pretty? We contribute pretty a lot of IP actually across the, the range of things that we're gonna talk about today. Uh, NSA does put a lot of IP into the open source world. Uh, our research directorate uh, actually takes the point for uh, helping to figure out how much of that we can uh, really sanitize because uh, a lot of the technology is really cool and interesting, but the technology itself isn't that sensitive. So uh, we certainly have been encouraged by you know, Congress, by the executive branch, to share what we can to up everyone's game. Yeah, and my, my sort of genesis of that question was, uh, you know, it, it could significantly improve first responders, and, yeah. and, and that, 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 that's yeah. goodness, right, to give back to the community. Right. Absolutely. And so let's, we, we talked about some really interesting things, uh, the tipping point, what might be next, but. You know, certainly data is the foundation of all of this. If we've got bad data, we've got bad data practices, um, then basically, you know, deep learning, machine learning are basically effectively useless. So let's talk a little bit 
though, about, you know, Greg, we'll start with you. In your current role, you're responsible for, you know, developing and providing, you know, most enterprise and mission technology, both across NSA, but then also to outside organizations, which I imagine is very important. You just indicated what some of those are. But can you speak to how, you know, AI is playing a role both inside the NSA and then what you are providing to outside organizations? I think you just kind of alluded a little bit to that. So we started... um developing this uh, large-scale mission environment, this IC Gov Cloud environment, um, about 12, 15 years ago. Uh, and at the time, uh, the problem we were facing is we had access to far more data than our humans could possibly get to, even data that we thought had intelligence value. So the question was, even if we can't get the humans to look at all the data, can we get the machines to look at all the data run big data analytics, help tee up to the humans, uh, uh, you know, what seems to be most interesting, most relevant, but help the humans to interact with all of our data more as a single entity, as opposed to having lots of stovepipes of data, because we started with lots of stovepipes of data. But as we started working our way through this problem, you know, industry had uh, a number of people, you know, again, uh, Google was, uh, uh, clearly uh, one of the leaders in industry in terms of dealing with big data and search capabilities. But the problem we had was that the underlying assumption for most of the commercial capabilities, it's pretty much true today as well. The underlying assumption is everyone who has access to the data lake is allowed to see all the data in the lake. And that's not our world. We have data from a variety of different sources. Some of them are highly compartmented. So. Uh, and in some cases, we have you know, legal and regulatory restrictions that only pe- certain people with certain training who are sp- specifically authorized can access the data. So how do you take advantage of the ability to do automation and uh, big data analytics and AI and machine learning while still respecting need to know and still respecting all of the different legal and compliance constraints? Because... I would contend that the signals intelligence business, NSA's foreign intelligence business, is probably the most regulated activity on the planet. You know, we're currently supporting about uh, eight to 900 different compliance regimes simultaneously within this architecture that I'm talking about. So humans need some machines to help them with that. So we started with, uh, had to sort of build this from ground up, inventing some technology, which we now pushed out, we pushed out into the open source world quite a few years ago. Uh, but we had to build some technology that basically allowed us to control need to know down to the individual data object level uh, within this environment. And it all comes down to you know, tagging all the data so we understand you know, uh, who's allowed to see it, how it needs to be handled, how long we're allowed to keep it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what laws and policies apply to that. And then also having an elaborate system to label all the people so we understand what they're authorized to see, what they aren't authorized to see, what training they've had, et cetera. And then the system serves up to the people the subset of the results that they're allowed to see and no more. So, uh, and then since we built our whole data environment you know, with this premise from sort of ground up, we've been systematically moving all of our data from all of our sources into this environment and you know, data from the rest of the intelligence community as part of, again, the shared service IC Gov Cloud offering. Since all the data was prepared the right way to start with, and there's a more exotic preparation we can get into if we need to, um, 
we can then run the machine learning, run the AI algorithms on the data that has all been kind of, uh, I would say, prepared and normalized very carefully. Uh, and then we can still serve up to the humans only what they're allowed to see from all of these uh, capabilities. And then, so in 2018, I mean, your organization quite famously kind of announced it was moving all data to the cloud. So, I mean, you know, we kind of touched on that a little bit, but, you know, how has this move advanced, you know, the use of data within the NSA, but then also set the stage for other applications? I mean, so, um, as I said, we started this journey, you know, over a decade ago. We had lots of different data stovepipes. And our analysts would spend half of their day dumpster diving in these different uh, you know, data pools and then trying to pull things that were relevant to the questions they were trying to answer. And then they'd spend their afternoon you know, trying to make some, put some story together that made sense, that was relevant. And then uh, the next day they would play the same game over again. Uh, you know, over that last decade, we've systematically put, moved all of our like gotten rid of all of our legacy environments, put all of our data into this uh, sort of central um, capability. And we really just completed that journey, you know, last year where we turned off the last major legacy system. Uh, and, you know, the increase in both the efficiency and effectiveness of the humans uh, who are putting out intelligence has just been phenomenal. Um, we've been able to automate a lot of the purely routine tasks. So if there's a question they're gonna ask every day, the answer's pre-computed and waiting for them uh, when they need it. Uh, uh, the machines can uh, have sort of prefetched a lot of things for them. They can interact with all the data uh, as a single thing uh, with the data sort of uh, prepared uh, for sort of the sort of answers we're expecting, but also allowing the humans to kind of ask very open-ended sorts of questions uh, and, uh, and see what they're allowed to see across all of our holdings so they can spend more of their time really putting those stories together. And where there is a type of result that we need to get out quickly to uh, a military commander in the field, troops in combat, a cyber defender, where the timelines are very, very tight, we can actually automate the whole end-to-end -end thing. So uh, the humans are focused on creating you know, new automated capabilities, as well as doing really high-end uh, analysis, we've taken most of the drudge work off of them. Again, uh, as the intelligence community has started to really play with our environment more and more, uh, we're able to put information together across agencies at a speed and scale that just wasn't possible before. So it's you know more at the beginning than the end of the story, but it's really exciting. And, and Kirk, I'm gonna ask you, you know, no one knows more about than you other than about managing volumes of data effectively. You know, it's a monumental task. So can you speak to the need for effective data management? You know, just listening to what Greg was talking about, you know, how do you create effective AI tools and models? And, you know, as well as, you know, really protecting the need for data accuracy, particularly when it comes to accounting and correcting for biases in data. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you need a uh, quote to advertise this, um, this podcast, but I'm going to give it to you right now. And that is data management and AI is almost as important as the AI technology itself. And, uh, you know, Greg just described some of the challenges that his agency faces with managing all that data. But I'd like to deep dive a little bit into the technology. And, um, you know, you can't simply take a petabyte of data and pump it into a neural net and then get a decision about what the next kilobyte is. 
uh, and, and you know, without training and going through the efforts of, of understanding your information. And uh, you know, present day, you can't build a productive AI system without already knowing the answers to the problems that you're trying to solve. Right? You, you literally have to, have to understand what you're trying to accomplish. And so what that means is that there's a significant amount of labor that goes into curating these training data sets uh, for machine learning and then labeling the data in data lakes um, for, for instance, in deep learning systems. And secondly, the AI models matter, right? The neural nets, uh, machine learning, deep learning, all require different training data sets, and that usually involves different data formats, right? So now we have a translation problem we have to deal with. And I'll give you a very specific example. In, in deep learning autonomous driving scenarios, you know, we have video feeds from the, uh, the, from the cameras and the LIDAR sensors, and they're used for mapping the roads. Um, those data sets have to be analyzed and then vectorized bounding boxes uh, are placed around, you know, the lights and the road signs, pedestrians, you know, other obstacles, other vehicles, in, in order to teach that deep learning system how to recognize those objects. And so that's where management techniques become critical, right? And, and so, you know, simple low-level data management primitives, like doing cloning and copy data management, being snapshotting and restoration, and metadata management for access control lists, make, make you know, fast and secure data manipulation at petascale possible. And so it becomes a valuable tool in the data scientists where, you know, we help reduce the production at scale problems of cleaning and transforming that data into usable input for AI systems. You know, a new industry term for this uh, process is emerging and it's called a data pipeline. And uh, the people doing that work actually call data engineers, which are different than the data scientists, right? Sometimes we cobble the two together, but the reality is there's a significant amount of analytic work has to be done up front to process all that data and then, and then create an environment where the data scientists can generate the intelligence or the information from all that data. And this question is for both of you. I mean, it's, it's an essential asset. I mean, your data is an essential asset. So when it comes to building, training, and updating AI platforms, can you both offer some best practices about what you're seeing around data collection and use? Um, we'll start with that. Uh, so best practices. So certainly all of that careful data preparation we've been talking about is really critical. But I think uh, one of the most important things that uh, we've been wrapping our head around is trying to understand what biases there might be in the data that are actually biasing our models. Mm -hmm. And um, that constant validation, revalidation of models and making sure that we're saving the training data that go into those AI models so that if we have a question about uh, whether the model is skewing our perception, we can go back and validate exactly how it was created. Right. So and we're in a process where um, we are constantly retraining models to get make them more precise uh, and constantly pushing out new versions. Uh, and again, that's all part of that human machine interaction thing. Uh, those are the first things I would offer. Yeah. And Kirk, what do you say? Well, you know, um, I, I think it's a natural inclination to store all the data. And on certain programs, I believe the government actually has requirements to do that. Um, you know, I discussed earlier about some of the operations that can be done to the data. So that, it, But if you have it in raw form, you can always recreate training data sets or reformat the data. And fundamentally, I think that's where most, I, um, most um, uh, AI systems are, you know, 
kind of in incarnated. It begins with a generation of a data lake, much as Greg said. Uh, recently, I've heard the term data ocean, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then engineers mold and sculpt that data uh, using overlay techniques like um, uh, like Jupyter notebooks or PyTorch uh, uh, tensors. And so that information can be fed into those models and then start to generate the, the output that's expected. But you know, as the models and the platforms move from incubation to production, we see that that data becomes more standardized, right? So it's, it's less about this big lake and then they start to call out the information that's really interesting in that particular workload or, or mission segment. And so what we see at, at that point then is um, you know, customers start to use selective storage model, models uh, to kind of optimize the throughput of the processing, or in the case of cloud deployments, optimize cost. Right? Um, and an adequate prediction about the consumption of the data actually leads to unexpected bills in the cloud. And so what we find is they start to tailor their models and the actual information that they process so that they can optimize their spend in the cloud. Another interesting aspect that we've seen is that um, nearly 80% of the time that, um, that that goes into the generation of you know, a, you know, an AI program is really on that data formation part on the front end. Customers often fail to recognize the uh, length of scope and scale associated with that. And so their costs balloon up through the through the ceiling. And then they say, this AI project isn't for me. I'm not getting return on investment. And so we see projects getting canceled. So long before you start down an AI project, try and, try and put some uh, some boundaries in terms of what, what data you want to process, the information you want to generate, and then put the appropriate structure in place, both in terms of budget, personnel, and resources. Well, let, I mean, let's talk a little bit about data collection. I mean, how can governments be sure they're obtaining the best data? And, you know, in terms of privacy, I mean, using it both in an actionable and an ethical way. And so, I don't know if you both have some thoughts on, on data collection. So I'll start with that last uh, piece about uh, using the data in a compliant and ethical way. And when I talked about, you know, NSA supporting, you know, eight to 900 different compliance regimes, that's really what it's all about. Um, you know, Everything that the National Security Agency does in its foreign intelligence mission has a possible privacy implication, right? That's why we have these very, uh, where our laws and the regulations are very, very clear that govern uh, signals intelligence because, you know, the courts have determined that being uh, unilaterally um, collecting someone else's communications uh, where you're not an intended recipient is a search and seizure. So it's actually a constitutional issue. It's a Fourth Amendment issue that we have to handle all the data appropriately and we have to ensure that we are not uh, collecting information that we're not authorized to collect against U.S. persons, U.S. companies, uh, 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 people who live in the United States. There are very tight rules on what we are allowed to have, what we're not allowed to have. And if we discover we have something that we're not allowed to have, we have to admit that we've made a mistake to the Department of Justice and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. So we have very elaborate systems to oversee, uh, to first of all, get the machines to help uh, keep the humans within the guardrails to the extent that they can. And then uh, other regimes to detect where uh, either something has gone wrong in our processing or a person has made a mistake to try to address that. But everything we do is very much privacy um, implicated. So the point is that you know, there are solutions to these problems uh, and we've had to confront them because it's so core to our mission. We couldn't go down this big uh, automation uh, journey without confronting, bringing technology to bear on those problems. Yeah. And Kirk, what are you saying too? I mean, certainly, you know, at the state level, I mean, you've got a lot of county health records, you've got a lot of state health records, you've got, you know, a lot of very personal data 
even at the, you know, I mean, you know, Greg just highlights some of the national security um, issues, but I mean, definitely there are also other privacy issues as the data gets a little closer to home. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and what we find is as you start to establish these large data lakes, you find all sorts of information that's in there. You got PIA data, HIPAA data, potentially transaction data. It all has to be secured and protected in different ways. I think fundamentally what has to occur, though, is the government has to become a bigger consumer of AI and be more aggressive when it comes to developing AI technology around the data management space with their research labs, private sector partnerships, and even in, in conjunction with open source. Right? There are, I've been on a couple panels at NIST that are just starting to have that conversation about how we do ontologies and syntax for data management for AI systems. Uh, there's actually an open AI format that's being bannered about in the open source community, and then the EU actually has, has some, some steps towards that, 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 that progress as well. Um, and so fundamentally, it becomes a national challenge, and I think the world is advancing rapidly without pause. And I would suggest that you know, the current use cases that are being best invested have too low of an impact. And we should really look at a grand challenge AI project to push the scope and scale of what's possible. Um, you, know, you know, cybersecurity is an obvious uh, example or use case, healthcare, and maybe even environmental data. And so, uh, you know, if you go back and look at the DARPA grand challenge problem that was uh, started in 2004, um, the only uh, the, the first grand challenge was an autonomous driving car out in the desert, right? And uh, you know, basically, none, none of the participants were able to complete the course. One year later, there were 23 entrants, and all but one finished the course, right? That's the level of pace and change and innovation that I think we can we can bring together if we have this public-private sector you know partnership to really develop these next-generation technologies. And failure is okay, right? That's the other problem. Uh, you know, people that are you know, program managers, oh boy, you don't want to be in the Washington <laughs> Post and say, hey, I've got a failed program, and here's why. But I think you know, in, in this scenario, you know, the, the impact of AI is so significant that it's worth taking you know, a chance and developing a program that might fail because in the, in the case of that DARPA program, they learn through the failure and those technologies are what's driving you know, current AI research or autonomous driving cars and UAVs and all the other things that the military takes advantage of today. And, and, and Greg, what do you think about that as well? I mean, what do you think some of the... So, you know, Absolutely, the government needs to take the right level of risks. Uh, I think we, and we absolutely need to have the right government industry partnership to make this work. Uh, and I would say that most of what we do, there's some exceptions, but most of what we do at NSA is a tight uh, government industry partnership. And one of the reasons we're able to push the boundaries of technology probably a little faster, actually a lot faster than most government agencies, is because we have thousands of government uh, personnel at NSA who invent technology and implement technology. We're not a typical government agency. So uh, because we have such broad and deep internal government expertise, we can work with industry and push those boundaries faster than others can. So we're trying to do what we can in addition, you know, uh, in addition to partnering with uh, with industry and pushing some things out into the open source world. We're also working with a lot of our uh, elements of the intelligence community, the Department of Defense, some other government agencies, helping them to understand what we've been able to do, kind of the nature of how we've been able to do it to help to show them uh, that some things are possible and they can take some risks in some of these areas because there are solutions. But the, that government industry partnership is really critical because the technology is moving at such a rapid pace. Uh, the challenge being, you know, uh, the government entities also have to stay within their respective, you know, right. regulations and compliance regimes. So 
we can't be too risk averse, but we can't be cavalier either. But that's where all learning off, you know, from each other and sharing our best practices, you know, we can go a little further and faster. And so you both, it sounds like both just the ability to to fail, both of you kind of say that I mean, there should be a, the ability to do that constructively. But um, we started the conversation with um, kind of the the idea of, you know, what, what do we, if it was a tipping point for 2019, what do we see for 2020? Um, what will government agencies need to do to see true tangible results in data storage management security in the, in the coming year? Um, I mean, what, anything else that you all think that you'd like well, again, kind of challenge the government to, to do this year. Yeah, I, I'll take a swing yeah. at it, right? You know, I, I think we're still in the barely early stages of using AI in the public sector. Um, you know, there have been several executive directives out there making AI a national priority. And uh, but, you know, there's there's still a lot of work to be done before we get to the use of apply, applied AI, you know, in, in broad in broad deployments. Um, I'd characterize, you know, as I'd done earlier, the, the, the use is really augmentative today where they use AI technologies to support an analyst or help this person. It's not a replacement. Right. And, um, you know, as one might expect, I think the intelligence community is, uh, is forward leading in, in the use of this technology and have been for years. And we're starting to see some of that flow down. There's an uptick in the DOD space, for instance, uh, the Joint AI Center, also known as the Jake, has some interesting initiatives out there. Right. They just uh, they've identified some use cases around. And, um, you know, predictive maintenance on aircraft, uh, supply chain and logistics, and then emergency response. And then over in the civilian side of the house, we see some chatbot services that are starting to roll out in a few civilian agencies. But once again, I still think it's very early. Um, in, the, in, the, in my other world that I support, the enterprise, um, we've got some very large scale customers that are doing you know, data controlled uh, voice assistance. And it's actually interesting that they're backed by tens to hundreds of uh, humans uh, that listen to the, the interaction with the callers. And uh, you know, they, they actually review the snippets where the conversations uh, weren't interpreted correctly. And then they feedback the, the appropriate response into the neural network system so that they can improve and respond. Time, but even in that scenario, we have a neural network that's processing, you know, hum, human voice, and fundamentally, we still have humans in the background improving and, and conditioning the models for better performance. And you know, so, you know, I, I think fundamentally, you know, in the end, where there's there's got to be some systems that are constructed uh, where we use higher quality training sets and, and data sets, and we go all the way back to sort of the genesis of this conversation, which is you have to invest in the data because that becomes the fundamental challenge in producing smart AI systems. Yeah. And I'll speak about a couple of things that the intelligence community is trying to do to move things forward. Uh, first is uh, the CIA is, has a, an acquisition activity underway called uh, C2E, which is really the follow-on contract to the classified commercial cloud contract with Amazon. So uh, the community's been really happy with uh, what Amazon's been doing for the community uh, this isn't a criticism of them, it's the fact that we're scaling up even more and the ambition is to uh, create an environment where we have uh, multiple cloud, classified cloud offerings, uh, different technology stacks, so we can bring even more of that industry innovation to bear on problems at the top secret level, secret level, unclassified level, so broadening the, the pool of partners. So multiple awards, uh, multiple vendors in that C2E uh, classified uh, cloud contract. I believe that uh, that uh, the request for proposal for CIA is going out like next month. Uh, there's some drafts out there now. The complementary thing is on the NSA side, uh, our hybrid compute initiative, where we are 
partnering uh, with industry right now where we're looking at you know, owning less of the hardware that underpins that IC Gov Club that I was talking about and leveraging more hardware as a service at a very large scope and scale uh, and uh, doing bulk buys of classified cloud compute so we can uh, you know, provide more scalability in partnership with uh, industry and help to expand these capabilities for additional intelligence community, Department of Defense applications, uh, giving ourselves more runway. And that's what the HCI uh, initiative is all about. But those are the two big things. But that's largely about opening the door so even more industry innovation uh, can be brought to bear, uh, not just on the mission side, but on the service delivery side and you know, the interaction with consumers and customers, all those things. We want to unlock all of that. Some of that's being leveraged today. But uh, as we open up the doors for uh, other platforms, you know, new possibilities emerge. Our final question uh, today uh, on our podcast, what do you both find to be the most exciting about the ways that government agencies are able to collect and use data to fuel AI? What's, what's the most exciting thing you see coming down the pike? Well, I think I already expressed my excitement around this this concept of fog computing, right? And, uh, you know, but I, I expect the government will use AI to, you know, protect our citizens either through better intelligence gathering initiatives or in the direct use of the defense mission. You know, I think it's going to be very impactful. Um, at the same time, I think it can also be used to improve the uh, you know, services for the citizens, creating new services from, you know, applied use of AI or maybe even direct use of AI. And, I, you know, I think healthcare is another interesting example uh, where they can provide better services in the VA. I know there's a couple of project, projects that are kicking up around VA and then NIH clearly has uh, some AI projects that can be really transformational to the human experience in the United States. And But, you know, I think we're just scratching the surface. There, there are actually some other simpler examples of use of AI technology at the Department of State for passport and visa applications, right? And so, you know, that, that in itself can be extremely satisfying. You can go see a loved yeah, one in another country. So something as pedestrian as that can, can be really, really transformational to a person as well. Uh, but in the end, you know, I think we're just scratching the surface. And, uh, you know, I'd love to return next year, maybe revisit this topic, you know, see where we're at, and we'll come to discuss and tell you where, where we think things are headed next. I would also like to close by, you know, commending Greg on, on this, you know, on this new emission on the programs that they're, they're undertaking. You know, we made statements and started developing technologies almost five years ago that we believed that the IT landscape would settle into a hybrid multi-cloud world. And we're starting to see manifestations that that's true across, you know, in commercial industry and now in the government industry as well. And so I think it's an exciting time for everybody. Last word to you. Okay, on uh, uh, AI and machine learning, uh, we talked about human language processing, but the intelligence community and NSA are working on uh, on voice, uh, images, uh, speech, text, uh, uh, and really um, helping the humans to, uh, to fuse data more rapidly. We're actually working on all those applications again. And uh, I think the other thing that's kind of most exciting is the way that the different elements of the intelligence community and the Department of Defense are starting to work much more aggressively together to pull our, to leverage these technologies, to pull all of our data together much more rapidly to get the insights we need to get to the policymakers and the warfighters and the cyber defenders. And uh, really exciting to see what's happened in the last year. And I think we're just getting started. Greg and Kirk, thank you so much for joining me today. I'd also like to thank our listeners of this episode of the AI Tipping Point. The AI Tipping Point is a production of Government Executive Media Group Studio 2G in collaboration with NVIDIA, NetApp, and WWT. 
If you like this episode, subscribe to Apple iTunes, Google Play, or govexec.com forward slash podcasts. Thank you for listening to the AI Tipping Point podcast, brought to you by Worldwide Technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp. With so much potential on the horizon for AI, let 2020 be your year to kick off or pump up deployment. Reach out today to learn more about how Worldwide Technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp can help your agency reach its full potential with AI.